Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Centric Health of Bakersfield. Welcome to Bakersfield Observe with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Good day, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the new Bakersfield Observe podcast with Richard Bean. I'm your host, Richard Bean, and we record the broadcast right here in the American General Media offices off Highway 99 right here in Bakersfield. The idea behind this podcast is simple. We provide a forum for the Bakersfield community to gather to discuss the issues that confront us all. Of course, you can access this podcast on kernradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're going to start off today with Mr. Jeremy Adams. He's a regular guest on this program. He's a teacher over at, at Bakersfield High School, and we're going to be tackling the concept of critical race theory, which has really divided this country. Before we get to Jeremy, I want to say hi to my producer, Mr. J.R. Flores. Mr. Flores, how are you, sir? Oh, God is good, Richard. Just blessed to spend the afternoon with you, sir. How, how have you been? Well, I don't get to spend every day with you, but I get to spend oh. weekly with you, so yeah. that'll have to be good enough now, won't it? Uh, th- th- that much of JR is probably about anybody <laughs> should have. 50% yeah. of JR is better than 100% of everybody Nobody else. Nobody wants JR every day, Richard, not even my daughter. <laughs> that's right. I want to thank all you <laughs> listeners to the old Richard Bean Show who have now transitioned over to the podcast with us. We're excited about it. It gives us a chance to tackle some of these subjects and... With the time that we need, you know, live radio is time is precious, of course, and with commercial breaks. On this format, we get to go as long as we want, as we will today with Mr. Jeremy Adams. Uh, Mr. Flores, what's going on around town? I saw on one of the morning news programs we have finally the new—remember when Noriega's closed over there? I do. It was a sad day, a lot of people. That was my favorite Fast restaurant, yeah. Mr. Flores, my favorite. It is now reopened in the old Cafe Med uh, facility over there off Stockdale Highway next to Houston Jewelers. That's what I hear, yeah. yeah I can't wait to go. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I wonder if it's going to be the same. Well, it, it, they had to stand up with the lay. I'm not sure who owns the new Noriega's, but they had to stand up with one of the owners, and they had the long tables. It looked exactly like the old Noriega's, of course, you New know, building, but in in the classic old building. Yeah. So they are open. I also heard that Eurikios is now, as of today, I believe, back opening for lunch. I believe eleven Ooh. to two. Does so that mean you're buying me lunch? I'm always buying you lunch, today? Mr. Yeah. Flores. You know that. Okay. Why? Of course, of course. And also, I saw on the news that, uh, and this is bad because the weather has been fabulous, hasn't it, Mr. Flores? Oh, it's been so beautiful. Oh, man, so this beautiful. Is, this is to die for here, but. We are in what they call an exceptional drought, Mr. Flores, an exceptional drought for California. Now, we know California, we we go through these droughts all the time, but this is going to be a bad one. To declare it an exceptional drought this early is not going to be good. Well, as opposed to other years where it's been just a drought. Just a drought. (laughs) This is exceptional. exceptional. 
Yes. Very exceptional. <laughs> we got two drops of water this year, <laughs> exactly. as opposed to the annual five drops we normally get. That's right. You want to keep up with the California water, you go to sjvwater.org. Our friend Lois Henry is uh, handling that. By the way, Lois was our first subject of uh, this new podcast. She is in episode one. You can retrieve that on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Episode two was Carlos Baldovinos, where we tackled the question of, which is still lingering, this homelessness issue, JR, is not going away. And the, the, the idea, has this thing metastasized into something that is not going away? Are, are we, is the country looking at almost a permanent level of a homeless population living on our streets? And if you go back to episode two, you'll hear Carlos say he has never seen anything like it. Of course, Carlos is head of the mission of Kern County, and he is seeing a permanence of this thing that is disturbing. It's so, exceptional. Exceptional. Kind of like the drought, our homeless population. It's an exceptional it's an population. Exceptional it's, we've gotten to a point where we're not, it's just out of control. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mr. Flores. I thought we solved that issue, though, Richard. I thought we took care of that. Uh, well, certain city council people seem yeah. to think we've taken care we've, of that. We've opened yeah. up good places. Yeah, <laughs> we have. We have. All right, Mr. Flores, <laughs> we're going to have Jerry Me Adams uh, talking about critical race theory. I got a special guest here today, a friend of the show, Mr. Jeremy Adams. He's been a history teacher at Bakersfield High School for 23 years now. Uh, as well as an, he's an adjunct professor at CSUB for the last 15 years. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on one of the maiden voyages of there this you go. extraordinary yeah. podcast. Well, it's great. I've, and uh, I was thought Joe about- Joe Rogan needs to watch out because Richard Bean is coming. That's Joe all I Rogan got to say. Joe Rogan has nothing he's on He's got me. nothing. You know what Joe Rogan doesn't have? Hair. You know. <laughs> Which you have, by the way. Well, not only do I have hair, but Mr. J.R. Flores, our producer, has hair in abundance. L- lot in abundance. In abundance. Was that a, in I, abundance? Abundance. No, was that intentional there? Well, I'm going to give no. you credit for it. I don't care if you want it or not. Okay. Great right. joke. Welcome. Look, I-, I wanted to talk about this concept of critical race theory, which now seems to be one of the most singularly divisive issues facing the country just getting a lot of attention depending on where in the country it's being taught we've got a lot of parents uh, upset i'm i'm following this issue and thank you for coming on jeremy because uh i know you know a lot about this and i'm 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 following this issue thinking is does this concept well we're going to get into what it means here in a minute but one of the overarching questions for me is is, is this a time in our country where we're where, like an inflection point, where as, as a country we're starting to look on the American experience in a much different way and what that means to us, uh, the voices and the people and, and the ancestors who we hold up. Everything seems to be changing on the table, and this seems to me just another manifestation of right. that. Uh, let's start uh, start in the beginning. Critical race theory. What is it in academia, and uh, when did it start, and who? Uh, uh, what does it mean? Well, again, you know, I got to tell you. First of all, just the the fact that we're having a podcast on critical race theory is fascinating to me. I've spent my whole life teaching American civics and American political thought, uh, and 
what's interesting to me is, you know, America is not known as a country that produces a lot of political philosophers. Uh, George Will uh, once said that the reason why America doesn't have a lot of political philosophers is because the country itself is the embodiment of a political philosophy. Hmm. Uh, America is a country made in the image of an intellectual movement. We are a nation of the European Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the ideas of the Enlightenment and the philosophy of the Enlightenment created an ideology called classical liberalism. And so Americans have always been classical liberals. That's that's who we are. That's our value system. Uh, it, it's kind of our unifying threat as a nation. Is that and, we, and what does that mean? When well, you're classical liberalism is this belief uh, from the European Enlightenment in things like natural law, uh, natural rights, uh, this, this notion. And, and again, the Enlightenment was founded as a way of juxtaposing what Europe, Europeans had had for four or five hundred years, which is a society held together, Richard, through a common allegiance to a sovereign, a monarch, a king, okay. right? The divine right of kings, through a common religion, right? To be French meant to be Catholic, to be English meant to be part of the, uh, you know, to be Anglican. Uh, and, and so for hundreds of years, our national identity in Europe was through a common allegiance to, to the church and the crown, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so Classical liberalism and the Enlightenment was a way of saying, no, we can order society in a radically different way. And instead of the divine right of kings, where power flows from God to the monarch, who has absolute power over all of us, and we are subjects of that king, no, 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 no. Now, God gives rights directly to the individual, and we create government in order to exercise power over us. And so sovereignty rests not with a king or a lord or a queen, but with the individual. That's right out of the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. It's right out of John Locke. And and that idea that the purpose of government is to protect the rights of the individual equally, right? Because we are all human beings. We all should have the same rights. That's what grounds our notions of equality and liberty. Uh, that was a revolutionary idea uh, in, in the 18th century. And we are the first country... In the history of the world, this is when people talk about American exceptionalism. It's not just be, it's not because we're just a great country. We are a great country, but a lot of countries do the things that we do. Mm-hmm. But we are the first country to take these high aspirations of the Enlightenment and to actually make them incarnate in a nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was profoundly difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And that's why you know we typically look back at the founding fathers with a kind of celebratory embrace. Look, they took these high-minded principles. Think about this, Richard. This idea that we're actually going to achieve capital J justice by giving life, liberty, and property and the the right to pursue and define happiness on one's own individual level, we're going to make that a reality. Mm. And we were the first country to do that. We take it for granted today. I mean, that's one thing I want to talk about today, the extent to which we take the profound, colossal, titanic blessings of this country and our system and our wealth and our freedoms and act as if they just kind of happened to happen without mm. profound sacrifice and heroism from people who came before us, I, I think is misguided. And I think it, it, it's infected and ensnared a lot of minds. Is, is classic liberalism, does it speak solely or uh, does it speak solely to how government is organized or does it speak more? No, it, well, again, there's a difference between, so we have an, our ideology and then we have our form of government, right? Mm. We are a democratic republic. That's our form of government, but our ideology is classical liberalism. So, you know, the English and the French today are classical liberals, but, you know, they have a different form of government to, to make that into a, a reality, right? We have a, a kind of a constitutional uh, presidential system, uh, and, and, you know, they have a parliamentary system, but they are classical liberals, right? They have the same basic belief system. And what's interesting to me is that the Enlightenment believed in 
it is called the age of reason, right? This idea that individuals, by exercising their freedom, can, and by having a robust conversation where everybody is free to say whatever they think, can actually come to a higher level of understanding, a higher level of truth. Uh, it borrows from the kind of Greek Socratic notion of a dialectic that you, you know, Richard Bean has some of the truth and Jeremy Adams has some of the truth. And if we have this really honest, robust conversation, we're going to reach a higher truth together. And then if you, if you unleash the power of a civil society where everybody is free to give their perspective, then you can inch closer to scientific truth or political truth. And that's to me, Richard, that's the secret sauce of America mm. is having an informed, passionate, free exchange of ideas. And that's why a lot of young people are very illiberal. Like they believe in deplatforming. If you have the wrong views, you shouldn't be able to speak at a campus. You shouldn't be the commencement uh, speaker. You, you know, we shouldn't let you have a, a Twitter account uh, if you have the wrong views. And in, in America, the way that you deal with a bad opinion is to use facts and to use evidence and to persuade people that that person is wrong. There's another you, which is just to silence them just mm -hmm. to deplatform them. And I, I think that that's dangerous. And so critical race theory does not believe in this, right? The, the, the critical, does not believe in? In the enlightenment. Okay. Uh, right. Critical race theory essentially believes that reality is a social construct, that the way that Richard Bean and Jeremy Adams looks at reality is constructed through different immutable characteristics like race and gender and mm -hmm. sexual orientation, and that our reality is an intersection of all these different identities. And the, the central idea of critical race theory is that uh, reality has been deliberately created in order to give power to some groups and to marginalize and oppress and not give power mm -hmm. to others. And the proper response to that, Richard, is to deconstruct society, is to deconstruct reality. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why they would argue that all of these institutions uh, really have been deeply embedded with the desire to not give power to women or people of color or, or gay people. And and it's so deep uh, that it's institutional. It, it's And that's what, you know, honestly, I know you want to talk about the 1619 Project, uh, but that's what really gets people very angry is this idea that, you know, you Americans on the 4th of July, you wear your red, white, and blue, and you eat your hot dogs and watch your baseball, and you think that America is about freedom. No, 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 no. America is really about something very, very different, much darker, much more sinister. Um, and that narrative of what America actually is and what it was founded to do is a very different narrative. And so critical race theory really believes that, um, that, that kind of the aspirations of, of the Enlightenment are really just a front for oppression. It's, it's a front for giving power to some groups and not others. And that's why you have to deconstruct society. Okay. Does that make any sense at no, all? No, absolutely. But, but here's how it makes sense to me. Uh, if you're in your, your 60s as I am, then you were reared in a time of Martin Luther King. Yes. You know, the, 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 I, I was taught we should not, we, we should work to be colorblind. Right, right. And this we is, should work yes. not to not to see racism as, as an impediment. We should work to lift everybody up. This is the generational divide. Okay, right. so, exactly. Right. So, 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 so this this is everything that I learned as an American. We'll talk about American exceptionalism yeah. in, in a minute because I'm wondering if that is a concept whose time has passed too. I was I had a father who said, "Love it or leave it." This is a country where you can do everything. I understand. I was raised a white child right. in the South. That's a different experience. I get it. 
But the I, what you what you just light, laid out for me was a focus instead of trying to look on the world as colorblind that we need to see all of the colors focus on the past of all of the colors and somehow policy has to follow whatever uh, follow that thread to resolve any inequities or anything well, that's been done in the past or help me here well no 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 you're no yeah i mean essentially the, here's Am the I close fun, right here's the <laughs> yeah absolutely here's the fundamental divide right so there's a big debate between you know the the desire to be colorblind versus color conscious Right. And this is and I, I remember seeing posts on some of my my teacher friends who said being colorblind is wrong. It's wrong to be colorblind because you are not listening to the experiences of people who feel like they've been marginalized on the basis of something that they were born with. And so the proper response in their view is is not to be colorblind, but to be very race conscious instead it, it is to focus on people's lived experiences as somebody who has been marginalized by society. And if you are in a group that has not been marginalized, the, 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 you know, one of the questions I know we want to talk about, is there something valuable about critical race theory? I think there is. That, that sometimes if, if a form of discrimination doesn't affect you, you don't see it. Right? And, and I think that this does give you a tool to see things that maybe you didn't see before, mm-hmm. and that does create a more humane and just society. Right. right. But at the end of the day, the idea of being race conscious, like almost hyper race conscious, I think if you had to invent a way of looking at civil society that would tear apart a multicultural society, that would be that. Because it, you're going to start to say, and this, this, is, this is where kind of the, the Hegelian and, and, and Marxist ideas come in, which is that either you have power and privilege or you don't, right? Mm-hmm. So the Marxist view of human history had this grand theory of history. And if I start to nerd out a little bit, stop me. Mm-hmm. But Marxist theory of, of history called dialectical materialism was that every society has this kind of the, 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 the capital class and the working class, right? The bourgeoisie and the mm-hmm. proletariat. Every society has that. And there's always the haves and the haves nots in every society. And it leads to tension and it leads to this notion of, of, of everything's a binary. And the way that you end history and achieve kind of utopia on earth is to abolish private property and make everybody the same, right? We all know the Marxist mm-hmm. uh, solution there. Well, the modern form of that, CRT, takes out the class part and puts in race, which is to say that you are born with power or without power. You are a victim or a victimizer. You are somebody who, uh, even if you don't know it, uh, you know, notice all of these things have kind of changed the way that we talk about them. So, you know, we talk about racism, but we talk about systemic racism. Yeah. We talk about bias, but we talk about implicit bias. We talk about aggression, but we talk about microaggression. So all of these forms of oppression and racism and homophobia and sexism, they're all still there, but they're just camouflaged, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and, and to a certain degree, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there's a lot of evidence when you have a, somebody who's black and white and they apply for the same job and they give the black candidate a slightly better resume, that oftentimes you, you see that they don't get the job. It's what we call racism with a smile, mm-hmm. right? And so that is real. That exists. Yeah. But the narratives of society that you are you know, born into these structures of power that control your life is antithetical to the American dream, right? America is, we all have agency. We all have freedom. I make my life what I want it to be. I can say, think, and do what I want to. Kind of Hegelian Marxist critique is like, no, you are a product of your race, your class, your gender, your sexual orientation. You don't have agency. You don't have freedom. That's an illusion that you have those things. And that's why this really gets 
to the in, into the to the inner souls of people who believe that you know America is a country where you can do anything you want to do because this narrative is no you can't no you can't you have been born into this situation and unless we dismantle all of these institutions and and and, and that's why the 1619 project I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself here really bothers people because the 1619 project says look this country is about oppression right what's the quote in the 1619 project racism is in America's DNA like we were founded to be oppressive. That's why we exist. We didn't we weren't founded for inalienable rights and freedom. We were founded to do these things. And I can't change my DNA. And so the question is, what do you do with that? If that's your belief that this country was founded from the very beginning to be unjust and to be racist and to be oppressive, and it's in our DNA, what do you do with that? How can you how can you make that argument that the country was founded? I I I, I kind of get it, it, it. I understand racist actions, right. racist laws. I understand prejudice. I understand history, moments in history. But I think it would be hard to argue. Or tell me, how can you argue that this country was that racism is in the DNA? Given that when that. T- 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 to me, seems to ignore a lot of the progress that this country has made, whether it's the Civil Rights Act of 65 or giving the women the yep. right to vote. You know, this is a society that seems to have confronted a lot of these things. There's a lot of issues out there, but has a pat. If, if this were, we are in a court of law, the court might say, you have shown a pattern of practice of trying to do the right thing, of reversing racist policies through legislation or right. whatever. How does that why doesn't that square why doesn't critical race theory recognize that because critical race theory argues that these institutions still propagate these things but it just looks differently like like the soul of the country is is what it was founded to be which was which was largely oppressive a lot of this is just and one of the things that people get very frustrated with critical race theory and i can hear it in in your voice is this inability to acknowledge progress Mm -hmm. right to say that we really you know and, and you have books like you know the 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 school to prison pipeline or the new Jim Crow, this idea that, 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 uh, you know, police forces are, are still just kind of implementing a lot of the things that you saw in the South in the 19th century. Um, that, that makes a lot of people crazy because they think, how can we say that by any objective measure, this country has made profound, profound, colossal, mm-hmm. uh, improvements in race relations. And yet, and yet, uh, this is, I think kind of a, a fundamental divide, which is, you were brought up in a time where you say you have this view that America is redeemable, right? That everything that's right with America can overcome everything that has been wrong right. with America. That's right. your view, right. right? Your view is the, the, this kind of Martin Luther King idea that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And 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 essentially, at the end of the day, America started off as a fallen nation, but we can be saved, right, by doing the right thing. Uh, and so. That narrative is one that a lot of people buy into. That is not, that is, the, the 1619 Project uh, largely uh, would argue that, look, we have, been, we have been racist from the beginning. And I have a lot of, you know, I have friends who would say, when you see these things that happen in America today, this is by design. This doesn't happen on accident. These institutions are rotten. And so, you know, when I ask, when I ask young people, what do you think systemic racism is? Because if you call a school that I teach at, and I've spent my whole life teaching people who don't look like me, 
-hmm. right? Very diverse populations. And if you call my school systemically racist, I, I, okay, what do you mean by that? What are you saying? Because here's what Jeremy Adams takes it to mean. You are saying that there are teachers there doing racist things, or we have policies that are trying to hurt people on the basis right. of their skin color. Right, exactly. That's not the way they look at it, right. right? That's not what equity, equity is a big word here, right? We, you notice we've replaced equality with equity. Equity is about outcomes. And so if you look at a hospital where one racial group is having a higher rate of um, uh, you know, a, a problem or, or right. a less favorable medical outcome, then you would say, well, there, there's a systemic problem. If you look at test scores, right? You look at test scores at a school and you would say, well, look at how one racial group is doing much better than another one. That is a systemic racial problem, right? And, 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 and the outcome, and this is where equity comes in. This is where you get to what I think are some kind of zany ideas that like, that would say, well, in New York City, we're going to get rid of the gifted and talented education because there's not enough you know, there's not enough racial groups represented in those programs. Right. We're going to get rid of calculus yeah. in California, right? We are going to get rid of the SAT in the UC system, right? Because we find the critics will say we're just getting rid of things because it's too hard for for certain groups that we're lowering the bar, right? Well, I think that's what a lot of people would say. I mean, what's interesting mm -hmm. about the UC system is they spent years and tons of money studying the SAT to see if it was biased, right. and the answer was no. And then, in, I think, in the miasma of last summer. Where you know everybody looked at the awful thing that happened in Minneapolis yeah. uh, with George Floyd, and, and and I think in the miasma that all these corporations, all these schools wanted to do something about it. Like, mm. how can this happen in America? Mm -hmm. How can this? How can this happen? This is against who we are. And I think in the miasma of that, a lot of people kind of filled that gap with a lot of these ideas mm. and started to say, well, if, if there's an unequal outcome, there must be something systemically racist. Get rid of it. Mm. Get rid of the SAT. You know. Mm. One racial group does a lot better than others. There must be something to that, mm -hmm. right? And that and that it's a different way of looking at. It. So young people, Richard, see it, see see the outcomes as the as kind of the evidence of racial problems. But I uh, whereas you and I would say, well, if you're not giving the same opportunities, or if the law is treating okay, you differently, that, that was the point I was trying to make. That's racism. And they, we, no, 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 the outcomes are different. And and like the, you know the, the kind of the godfather of critical race theory. Uh, the guy who is kind of like the, the grand poobah of all of it. His name is, you know, Ibram Kendi. He's the one who wrote, you know, um, Stamped and How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to give you a quote from him. He says, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So the only is this, I mean, it sounds to me like an eye for an eye. You discriminate against us or we're going to discriminate against you. But you have to, uh, well, the idea is that it, 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 it's about power, right? It's about okay. power. And, you know, certain groups in America have had power right. for hundreds of years and certain yeah. groups have not. Mm -hmm. And, and the remedy for that is, is, you know, looks very different. Like you and I think, well, the remedy to that is if somebody, if there's a racist law, get rid of it. Right. If there's a racist person, fire them. Right. That's the solution. Younger people, people who live in critical race theory, believe that, that the, the answer is to get rid of a lot of things like the SAT or these, these institutions that have unequal outcomes. You know, you, you have to have a different kind of remedy. Hmm. I mean, Does it, that make any sense to you No, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. Look, I mean, we, we talk a lot about income inequality in this country. We do. You know, and, and you know, the, this gap between what a CEO makes and the average worker. And you know, one, one of my arguments is, well— if if we are, and I'm not arguing against it, are we? If we're bringing thousands of people in the country every year from distressed societies who may not be literate in their own language, right. you know, uh, and they they're making 
maybe, you know, uh, entry-level wages, you know, and there you have a disparity. I'm looking at that and going, well, that is a product of they came from an impoverished country and now they're given an opportunity. Others might look at that and go, you know, why are you making so much more money? I mean, you understand? No, I mean, I, I, th- th- to me, that doesn't well, seem and, like a deliberate racial policy. And this, and this is this is the this is where people get really frustrated with critical race theory because uh, you know, you know, Ibram Kendi has said if there is an un- unequal outcome among races, it is there is a monolithic explanation for it. And we all know. I mean, I think most people would say. Reality is complicated, man. Yeah. There's a million reasons why somebody might have a different medical outcome at Memorial Hospital than somebody else. Mm-hmm. There's a million reasons why the scores might be different uh, between Asian students and white students. There's a lot of and, and just to, to simply give a monolithic, it's always race. I think is 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 really simplifying something that's that's complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think when people say, "Well, we need to be race conscious instead of colorblind," I, I think. Kind of the, the good part of that is to say, in the country, if you have all of these disparities between white and black, for instance, I mean, you look at you look at birth weights because African Americans have jobs that are different than white Americans, mm-hmm. right? If you look at how much savings between white and black families, mm-hmm. we've got educational levels, all kinds of things. At some point, I, I think there is a point to say, well, why is that? Why is that? I mean, mm-hmm. and I think what you saw last summer is. This country is tired of waiting for this for, for real racial equality, and, and, and I understand that young people don't want to wait. You know, they mm-hmm. look at what came before and they're like, yeah, that's good, but look at all these disparities today. Mm-hmm. L- look at the difference between white and black. Look at this. I mean, if this country really was racially blind, if really really were living out Martin Luther King's dream, then this stuff like it happened in, in Minneapolis wouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. And and I understand that frustration. I, I see that energy. But I think that the medicine that young people want for that disease, it, it would make things a, a lot worse. When you start to judge people based on immutable characteristics, Richard, people, you know, people start to get very defensive. You yeah. know, that you, are, you have white privilege or you are, because you are a male, you this or that. And I think people do get defensive. Um, and even though I think there's probably, again, there's some truth to that for sure. I mean, right. I, I don't. Do you worry when you walk to your car at night that you're going to be attacked? Nope. I don't. I don't. No. You know, you're and, not. And so it's. Well, Uh, Well, we're talking to Jeremy Adams, BHS, about the the subject, of course, is critical race theory. You're listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean here. Thank you, Jeremy, for coming again. It just seems to me, Jeremy, I I don't know if if I'm being old school about this, but how, you know, when when people, uh, when you ascribe everything to race, you know, well, let me ask you this first. Yeah. Are there other societies who are, are looking at their societies? I'm thinking, it just seems to me, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling articulating this. I lived abroad. I lived in Mexico for five years. I lived in Spain. Yeah. I yep. lived in Egypt for a while. Every society has its socio, you know. Tensions. It, it, tensions. Yes. In, in Egypt, it was the Coptic Christians who were ostracized. You weren't even allowed to live in town right. there. You know, I mean, every society, you know, in, in Mexico, you know, there, it, it's no, it, it should come as no surprise when most of their, their even though they have Mayan symbols on their coins, they elect people who look like Europeans. Right. You know, All right. we have lots of these things. So when I apply that to this country, 
I go back to the teachings of my father. I do believe in American exceptionalism, at least how I define it. And I'm looking at this going, why are we concentrating on and pissed off because something's wrong that happens in every other society? I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that when it seems to be normal human behavior, whether you're in Egypt or, or Oildale, what does that mean and what does that constitute? Brilliant question. Mm-hmm. I'm not just saying that because you're the host. Mm. I think what you're saying is we are not uniquely bad at this. Thank I, you. And we are That's not. I mean, what I'm trying and, to say. Yeah, and, and essentially, yeah. uh, it is really, really hard to build a multicultural society. Mm-hmm. Uh, bias is, 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 is natural, mm-hmm. right? This idea that we're going to, of course, favor people who think the way we think, live where we live, look like we look, believe what we believe. And creating a multicultural society where we are tolerant, where we do treat everybody equally, is a colossal achievement that the United States, by the way, we integrate better than any other country in the, in the history of the world. I would argue that as well. What is our old national motto? E pluribus unum. Right. Out of many, one. Hmm. And I think your frustration is if you keep focusing on the many, 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 and, and you, you focus on these ideas that, that America is inherently divisive, inherently doesn't want certain people as its citizens, that America isn't for everybody, you're never going to get to the unity. You're never going to get you. to the unum, right? And it's mm. going to be a divisive, really perhaps violent society if you cannot successfully mold it together. And I think this is what you're talking about. So a few things here. First of all, uh, we do it better than, than anybody else. I mean, you look mm. at Europe where... Uh, you know, you have all of these populations from Northern Africa and from the Middle East, and you see all of those tensions. Mm-hmm. Remember about seven or eight years ago, you, you had these, you know, very traditional Muslim populations and secular Europe, mm-hmm. and you had all these attacks, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you don't see that in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that you can, you can embrace where you came from and still be just as good of an American as anybody else, mm-hmm. right? That, that's the beauty of being an American. And so what worries people, and this worries me, is... For thousands of years, the things that yoke together a national identity, Richard, mm-hmm. things like unity through like allegiance to a pharaoh or a king or a sovereign or standing sultan. up for the national. Well, that, that's where I'm going. That's where okay. I'm going right now. Right. Is that is that you know uh, a racial identity, mm-hmm. a religious identity, a linguistic identity? Mm-hmm. America doesn't have any of those things, mm-hmm. right? We don't have any of that stuff to unite us, right? You, we have freedom of speech, freedom of religion. You can speak any language. You can have any color. So at some point, you have to ask the question. What makes an American an American? Mm-hmm. If it's not race or language or how long you've been here, I don't give a damn. If your parents come over, on, uh, your great-great-great came over on the Mayflower, or if you were came over a year ago, mm-hmm. you can be an equal American in this right, country, right. right? But the question is, what makes an American an American? And that's the American experiment. This is what Jefferson referred to as the experiment of America, that people can come from all over the world, but there's something that unites us. There's something that yokes us together, that gives us a common civic identity. And when you teach or you suggest that this country hates certain people, or you suggest that this country isn't meant for everybody, what that does is it makes it so that there is no unity. There is no unity, right? right? And so— Isn't that the great danger in all of the, this? The, the, to me, that is— Isn't the that great, the glue, the national that, glue? Yeah, exactly. That That's somehow That somehow binds us all? Well, again, it's, what, what's, what are the opening words of, of the Constitution? Mm-hmm. We the people. Mm-hmm. You know, Richard, people always think of the Constitution as a noun. It's this document. But it's also a verb. Right? You're an old newspaper man, or mm-hmm. a young newspaper man, mm-hmm. right? To constitute a new nation, to constitute 
a people. And Lincoln said, we are a nation dedicated to a proposition, right? We are, we are a propositional nation. We are not a religious or racial or linguistic nation. We are a propositional nation. Be, being an American means believing in the proposition that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. To believe in that proposition is to be an American. If you say that that document, that that declaration, that that constitution is a farce, it's a lie, mm -hmm. it's just a front for power, then I don't know how we bind together anymore. What, what do we have as our civic glue anymore? We typically in this country honor people who bring us closer to that ideal. I mean, I think what drives people back crap crazy about America is we have these soaring ideals that other countries don't have. I mean, we say this is the ideal, right? This is the, everybody has inalienable rights and, and, and you have a God-given right to them and you look at our history and we haven't done it. We haven't done it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that disparity drives people crazy. Now you look at that disparity and you say, well, it's getting smaller. Mm -hmm. That gives me civic pride that we're getting closer to capital J justice. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would say that, no, you're just phonies. Like, you, you, you say these things, but, but, but you don't live them at all. And if you look at America today, there are all these gaps on gender or race or whatever. So you're not living up to your creed. And that's what worries me is, you know, I have young people who say, why would I stand for the national anthem? This, this is a country that doesn't like me. Mm -hmm. It's not for me. That breaks my heart. Well, that's, that, that was my follow-up question is, what are the dangers? And you just ex articulated one of when we bring up generations of children, our children or our grandchildren or whatever, who believe that they live in an institutionally racist society that has been like this since the beginning, that has deliberately, I think that's the key, deliberately established a system to keep some, you know, to, to benefit others at the expense of, of others. Power, always power. Power, all yeah. about power. Once you believe that, well, then you have lost faith in the cop that pulls you over, over the teacher who grades your, your, your papers, yeah. you know, your boss at work who, 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 who didn't choose you for the promotion. Everything becomes an excuse when you have been told it's an unplay, uh, unfair playing field, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, one of the now, I, I would say that I, now that doesn't mean that, that that there's not a point to that, though. I mean, there, I mean that there is not still work to be done. Remember, the Constitution doesn't promise a perfect union, a more perfect union, right? Right, and the task, the aim, the aspiration. I mean, we are an aspirational nation, right? This idea that, that every generation has its work cut out for it, but that we use our individual freedom to lessen that gap between our ideal and our real. That's what it means to be an American and to live up to our highest aspirations and to these ideals. But what, you know, what, what's interesting to me is in, in 2012, you know who Bono is, you know, the, the YouTube oh, yeah. singer? Bono's a brilliant guy. Mm -hmm. And he goes to Georgetown University and he gives this great speech where he says, America, you know why the world loves America? Because America is an idea. He says other countries, England's a great place, mm -hmm. but it's not an idea. Ireland's a great place. It's not an idea. South Korea is a great place, but it's not an idea. The reason why anybody can be an American is because anybody who believes in that idea, they can make the most out of their individual freedom to live the lives that they want to live. This is where people on the right drive me crazy with this, you know, don't come here. There's a reason why immigrants make great Americans because they weren't able to exercise their freedom the way they wanted to. Yeah. And they come here because, because we are an aspirational land. Mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't... 
I don't know if, if you get this, but the reason I, I teach political science is because I realize how unique this is. Mm -hmm. In throughout human history, freedom is not the rule. It's oppression. Wealth is not the rule. It's poverty, right? It's it's not the it's not the the the, the equality of a constitution. It's the writ of a pharaoh. Mm -hmm. And we, I mean, on our money, it says novius ordo seclorum, a new order of the ages. And 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 and. Even though we're not perfect, I do believe that we have the capacity to be a more perfect union. But what really, 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 really bothers me, and I'm starting to see this in young people all the time, is the difference between seeing America as a country where people are free to exercise agency, right? To be who they want to be, mm -hmm. is very different than what we call fatalism, which is that history and all of these structures of power have decided that as a, as a gay gonna, yeah. African American poor person, this is my life. Yeah, and there's nothing I can do about it, and and that's that's a European view. Well, but but what is the difference between fatalism and critical race theory? Well, it's, 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 it, it sounds very similar. Well, that's 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 the argument against it. Mm. Is it is, is it is it trains people to think of themselves as members of groups rather than as free acting agency inspired individuals pursuing their interests and achieving happiness in their dreams? Mm. And it's it's a very it's a different view of reality. It's a different view of how a civil society should be constructed, and that's why. I said at the very beginning, I know I'm getting a little excited here, but this is a real challenge to classical liberal yeah. enlightenment American values. This is not Barack Obama and John F. Kennedy mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King and, and the Gettysburg Address and the 14th Amendment. Th that's not. Those things are front for power being exercised over people who have not had it. <laughs> so why would you believe in those things, even right. though those are the things that unite us? Right. And so I just get really worried because my question is, okay, fine. What do you do with these ideas? Right. What's next? Right. And that's why some people get pretty paranoid. They're like, "That's why would we teach this in the schools? Because we want a... And this is... Man, this is an interesting thing. A lot of people think you teach this kind of disdain for the country. Because if you really don't like it, you're much more open to changing it. Mm. Right? And you're mm. much more open to saying, yeah, we don't... Capitalism, that's no good. You know? But frankly, don't forget millennials favor socialism over capitalism. Right. They have right. a, a lot of them on campuses do not believe right. that unpopular opinions should be spoken. Right, right. Let me ask right? you, let me ask you something. Am I just being totally naive here? But I have two girls, right? I raised two girls in this community, and when they were teenagers, uh, I had many discussions with them, and a lot of them were teenagers being teenagers and girls being girls. They wake up in a bad mood; they don't want to do anything. We'd have these these dad to daughter conversations about. I'd say, "Look, you have a choice. You know." You can wake up, you can make it a good day, mm -hmm. you have to do that, or you can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, this whole kind of mind over matter, it's all perspective is key, right? Mm -hmm. Do you wake up and count your blessings? Do you wake up and put a smile on your face? Do you wake up and do something good, or do you... Uh, Wallow. Uh, yeah, look at your navel the rest of the day, yeah. and, and woe is me. To me, that seems... I'm, I'm not sure if there's room for that in critical race theory, because uh, that is a... It, that is a view that that is looking looking for the positive because to, to, to exercise that, Jeremy, is I have to look for the good things in society. I have to look at my fellow man and say, you know, something a a black person or a brown person or an Asian person did something really nice for me at Albertsons today, and to me that affirms that at its at our core we all want to do the right thing. But if I assign myself to a group, you know, once I once I leave the the shell of the individual and become a group, mm -hmm. then it's easier to find 
how people have wronged me. Yes. Does that make sense? Uh, you know, it, it makes complete yeah. sense. I, I, I think what the people who are proponents of this would say, that's easy for you, right? That's easy for you to say. You, you've always had the power right. in this society. Right, this they would say this society was made for people like Richard Bean right. and Jeremy Adams. Right. right, I mean, of course you feel that way because if you wanted to do something, you wanted to go uh, have a radio show, if you wanted to be editor of a, of a big newspaper, if you wanted to buy, uh, you know, if you want to go and, and and play pickleball in the morning, mm-hmm. Richard Bean can do that. A lot of people can't, yeah. and we feel like there are structures that were deliberately put in place so that we can't live the lives that we want, and that's why they need to be dismantled. Mm-hmm. I mean. Do you understand that perspective? I, I absolutely do. Yeah, and I abs- uh, and and I understand, and and I struggle with this stuff. The whole kinds concept of white privilege, I get. You know, I understand. I think it's, it's real. I think there are things that we absolutely. I understand yeah, I the mean, world I yeah. grew up in. I understand who was making those hiring decisions when I was hired. I re- I remember who was in the room. I get all that. Yeah. You know, I'm 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 not you know blind to it, but when I look at a diverse country like this and people trying to reach a goal, at least that would be my view, and the goal would be a society where everybody has opportunity to benefit and thrive and and try to get along. And to me, the idea, if you want to go through life, focusing on how a group has been harmed well, hell, there, there's plenty of fodder well, for that because you you can spend an eternity on how different groups have been harmed over the over let, over history. Let me talk right? about that because uh, I'm going to say something here that I think is is I think a lot of adults know to be true. Okay, young people are smart; they know how to get what they want, and if a young person knows that they say, "Look, I feel like you are harming me." You are saying something or doing something that's that's hurting me because of something you're doing or saying. They understand that that's the path to power. That's a path in our society. See, it used to be that power, you got power through character and education and virtue and and moral excellence. This is kind of the Aristotelian view of of individual agency, Mm -hmm. right? That you have to control yourself before you can control the world around you. Mm -hmm. That's why we focused on things like character formation, Right, things mm-hmm. like reason and fortitude and and temperance and all of these things, so that if you could master yourself, then you had agency in the world to be the person you wanted to be. That's why you know moral excellence comes before worldly success. But if now we're saying that's not the path to power, the path to power is to point out how you're being slighted, how you're being wronged. Then incentives matter. Young people are going to know, and and, and this has very real consequences. I'm, I'm writing about this in my book that's coming out in August. My father is 79 years old. If you showed him the way that a lot of schools work today, where we're constantly catering to bad behavior and we're mm-hmm. saying, you know, we can't really punish it because we understand. We have mm-hmm. to, excuse, we understand that you're throwing F-bombs mm-hmm. because that's how people talk in your home. Whereas 30 or 40 years ago, we'd say, okay, we understand that. Mm-hmm. We, underst- we understand it. But the job of a school is to give you the skills and the habits to be successful. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be tolerated here. It's not going to be tolerated here, mm-hmm. right? And so if, if you're being failed at home, we're not going to fail you at school. Now, schools are largely therapeutic institutions. We're there to make you feel good, oh. to feel supported. Wow. Whereas, and, 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 there's a, and, and again, I think there's something to that too. We've talked about this before. I, mean, I do think that a student who's been fed is going to do better than somebody who hasn't. Okay. Somebody who feels safe is going to be. So I think there's, mm-hmm. there's something to that. There is something to the social, emotional aspect mm-hmm. to it. But I do think that the pendulum has swung way, way, way too far. Um, and so that, you know, if, 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 if a student cusses you out, 
they're not suspended. You know, they get a little slap on the wrist and they're back in school the next day. I, I, I think that's that that's a consequence of saying this is how you get power in civil society. Like, I've noticed this change in my career. When I was a, a student or a new teacher, students wanted to impress you. Right? I mean, they, they wanted to, yeah. you know, I want to succeed sure. in your class. I want to show you I know some things or look at how well I performed Everybody on hated the teacher's pet, but right. they wanted they, they, to be the teacher's right. pet. They, the, the, right. the students understood that, that the teacher was giving them something and they could take that education or those skills and, and, and use that to exercise their individual liberty better, right? Mm -hmm. That's the magic sauce of American education is, is education is the, the broadest door to the American dream. That's not the way of it, Richard. Nowadays, it is very clear that I'm here for the kids, right? I am here for them. And frankly, a lot of them, they're not concerned about impressing us. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, this year has been the exception to the rule, right? I, I have, this has been the most grateful class of kids I've ever mm -hmm. taught. I mean, they were, wow. oh, profoundly grateful. I mean, I got more letters, thank you notes than mm -hmm. I've ever gotten in my career. And I think, you know, so I'm not talking about these kids, but in the last 10 years, it, the lack of gratitude uh, that young people have for their country, for their teachers, um, because to a lot of them, why would they like their country? Could we take a minute here? Again, I'm talking to Jeremy Adams of uh, Bakersfield High School and CSUB about critical race theory. Uh, you've mentioned a couple times this book you have coming out in August. Could, I do. Could you give us a, a, a you know a brief synopsis of what? This sure. Is about? Uh, well, first of all, just as a as a as a human being uh, who has dreams, sometimes young people forget that people in middle age have dreams. Um, this is the book I've been wanting to write my entire life. Uh, and I've written other books about education and, and, and so forth and so on. But this is my first big, big national book that's intended to be popular, right? I mean, it's the kind of book that I'd love to see on a, on a bestseller list. And it's called Hollowed Out. And Hollowed Out. Hollowed Out. Okay. Uh, and, and it's a warning about America's young people. And by the way, it's not a criticism of them. It's you and me, Buster. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's really an indictment of us and the world and the educational system and the families that we've created for them. But the basic idea is that the things that traditionally anchor human life to meaning, to human flourishing, which would be things like faith, family, mm -hmm. country, community, reading, uh, learning, traveling, growing, um, relationships, all of these things that we've taken for granted as being uh, essentially the catalyst for living a full and meaningful life right. are missing from their lives. Uh, the, the young people today are young people today, and then, you know, the teenagers, people in their 20s are the most miserable group of Americans that have ever lived. The amount of anxiety, the amount of self harm, the amount of suicide. And that is because we have created a world where there are no connections for them. They are not connected. You and I understand that we are Who happy. Who is we? We. How did I fail? Well, here's we have created a world where it is okay for them not to connect to things, no. right? They are, they live these cloistered, individualized lives where they're mm -hmm. looking at a screen all day, man. Mm -hmm. um, they don't date. They don't want to particularly have families. Mm -hmm. You look at the sexual activity of people in their 20s. It's not there. I mean, every major, yes, they talk about there's a lot of Netflix and very little chill, you know, that, that, hmm. that, 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 that these things that connect the individual to things that are bigger than themselves uh, has essentially been severed. And so I, I do have a big theory in the book. It talks a lot about postmodernism. Hmm. Um, and my theory is that we have essentially allowed this generation to really succumb to what I would call radicalized individualism, that you and I understand freedom as I, I am free to attach my things that I want to attach myself to, to a political party, to a person who I marry, to a family, to a place, to a community, mm -hmm. to a political cause, to a certain you know religion or or whatever, right? 
I use my freedom to decide how to connect to the world. A lot of young people see freedom as the ability not to connect to anything. Mm. And why is that, Richard? Because when you make commitments, they require something of you. It takes away your individual freedom every day. When you have a child, when you have a, a career, mm. when you love your country and you might have to go serve in it, it limits your options. So the individual freedom is their holy grail. Oh, absolutely. At the expense of everything else. Oh, I, I, like, like individual agent, like the ability. To, and, and when you, you want to have like a really powerful example of it, look at the way that young people look at religion. And I, again, I'm a public school teacher. I don't mm. care if you're religious or not. Mm. That doesn't bother. I mean, again, it's not my job to make you into a Hindu or a Christian or an atheist or whatever. What bothers me is how ignorant they are of the world. Like they don't know any, like I had a, a class a few years ago and they, they didn't know what Easter was. Like they what? thought it was about the, the Easter bunny and about, about eggs and about springtime. Half of them didn't know what it was because a lot of them just immediately out of hand. You know what? Religion is judgmental. Oh, it tells me what I can't do. The whole language of religion, right. dogma, commandments, right. faith to something that you didn't create. That's very antithetical. They hmm. want freedom. It's my right to be what I want to be, wow. do what I want to do. And I remember this, this was out there. I had a group of students, this is a lot of years ago now, who believed that when you die, Richard Bean, whatever you believe is going to happen is what's going to happen. What? They, that is a, I mean, that makes narcissists wow. look humble, yeah, right? Really? This idea that, I mean, that makes you God. And I thought, I said, what? I said, you're, you're free to believe whatever you believe, but like you believe, like, yeah, well, we're not going to judge anybody else's religion because like whatever you think is what, I mean, think about that. That's a kind of individualism on steroids yeah, that, right. and you, you can't say no to people like that. You can't say no. I, I have these huge fights with my daughter because she believes that the worst thing to do sometimes is not to judge that something is wrong, but to be judgmental. Like the actual judgment is worse than the bad behavior itself. Interesting. Right? Yeah, and, right. And, and, and so when you have that worldview, I believe it, it, it hollows you out. And, you know, when, as a teacher, I'm going to get emotional here. As a teacher, I, I want my students to live big lives, man. I want them to fall in love. I yeah, want them yeah. to see the world. Right. I want them to read the big books. I want them to, 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 to love whatever religious faith they come from. I want them to make big commitments. I want them to have a big life. Because typically people who are committed to things beyond themselves are happy. Mm -hmm. Right. They know mm -hmm. why they're alive. They're grounded in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, happiness, Richard, is spending your life in a place that you don't want to be anywhere else. Like I, I am mm -hmm. doing with my life what I want to do. And the beauty of America is I chose this. Yeah. I, my race didn't impact right. this. My gender didn't right. impact this. My sexual. No, I chose this life. Right. And, and, and that's why freedom is necessary for happiness. Mm -hmm. Right. This is this is Thomas Jefferson. This is John Stuart Mill. This is Abraham Lincoln that without freedom. You can't be happy because it's not a life of your own choosing. That's why people come here. That's the beauty of America. And what bothers me is when young people no longer believe in the enchantment of life, that the best that you can do is simply give me the space to do what it is I want to do. Right. And, and that's, that's a really hollow view of life. And, and they're not happy. They're not flourishing. And... I, it's just, I think, a really infantile view of individual freedom. Your book is hollowed out. It comes yeah. out in August. August 3rd. Hoping to come back and talk yeah, all about it. Yeah, we're going to come back and talk yeah. about that. We're not done uh, yet. Does, does that make any sense to you? This yeah, is ab absolutely. It's terrifying to me, though. And it, I, it, well, this, the, All this discussion, Jeremy, and again, you know, at my age, I'm looking at this going, this is such a 
in my gut, I feel America changing mm -hmm. in a really important way. I'm not sure. It doesn't scare me because I know each generation kind of goes through this too, but it's changing in a way that really defines what it means to be an American and what, uh, exactly. you know, what American greatness means to somebody, what American exceptionalism means. I feel very old school here, kind of growing up in a period where all of those, I still get chills down my spine yep. when there's the national anthem is played. And yet, intellectually, I understand why some people may not want to stand up well, to it. But yeah. it's it's the teaching. It, it It's how we approach that. If you go through life, I'm sorry, I'm, no, I'm no, go, back. but when we go through life feeling that we're a victim, you know, because mm -hmm. isn't that part of critical race theory that that I have been victimized somewhere because I'm in a box of people? These structures of power have put me here. Right. Yeah. It, it, that, that has proved to be powerless compared to somebody else? Well, I would say a few things. First of all, I, I think people would argue that... And I, I take you at your word that the reason why you are worried about your country is because our fundamental assumptions about what America is is changing. Right. I think some people who are, who, are, who are very cynical would say, no, it's bothering you because people who look and act like because you are Because that's a threat power. to me. Yeah, it's yeah. a threat to you personally. Which, that yeah, which, yard. you know, that, that, that's a common argument. Um, but I, I think what you're, what you're talking about is, is, is so important to talk about because when we talk about kind of fundamental assumptions about what the country is, I, I think that, you know, you go all the way back to the Greeks, and the Greeks said that the purpose of education was to instill certain habits of the mind and the heart to renew the regime in which you live, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what you're saying is if young people are not taught to revere our traditions, I mean, Lincoln was talking about this uh, back in the 1840s in one of his earliest speeches. Um, he said, you know, everybody needs to remember the sacrifices that came before them so they understand the blessings that they have and as time goes on if we forget that then then people aren't going to have the habits to renew the very values that make our lives what they are and i think what, what i hear you saying is you're afraid what america looks like in 30 or 40 or 50 years mm -hmm. when people don't value or don't see the country as the kind of aspirational individual centered society that it's, it's meant to be now i would say to you though I don't think there's anything wrong with learning about more episodes that don't make us look good. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a teacher. I want, like, did you know a lot about Tulsa? Uh, no. I, 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 I had no, I, no, I never didn't. taught it in schools. Uh, never. Right, I, was, see, see, I was a history major yeah, as you were. I, I, nothing. I, I think that's good. Yeah, I, I think do we too. should know I that. I do too. Right. Um, and, and, or, or Juneteenth. Yeah. I, I didn't know much. So I, I think there are people on the right who are like, don't teach that, you know, because it makes America look bad. No, that's fine. Yeah. But the difference is you have, the, 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 I think, the far right that would say, you know, I can explain that away because at that time, the, those bad things were happening everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people on the left would say that, it, that, like, here's my question to Richard Bean. What is the real America? Is it, is it, is it these awful, unsavory, is mm -hmm. it the way that America meddled in Latin and South America in the 1900s? Is it slavery? Is it, is it, is it Jim Crow? Is that the real America? I would argue that the truth is between those two. The real mm -hmm. America is we did those things. We have to own up to it. We have mm -hmm. to talk about the way that, that that happened in Tulsa. We have to admit that that we mm -hmm. were not living up to our ideals. But this is the way that there's a difference between young people and old people. The elder, like like younger Americans say, look, that's the country. This is our country. Mm -hmm. Why would I say the national anthem for that? Yeah. Right? It, like, I don't even want to say the national anthem anymore in my class because so many kids don't even stand for it anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? Because they say, well, that's, that's the country. Mm -hmm. That's the nation. 
Whereas I think you and I would say, no, 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 no. This nation is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah, right. This nation is the 1965 Voting Rights Act. This this nation is the 24th Amendment. This nation is the Gettysburg Address. This nation is our same-sex couples being respected in a way they weren't 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we see America as moving towards this ideal, and it's messy, and sometimes mm-hmm. you go backwards, right? And sometimes people say and do unsavoring things, but the arc of our history is definitely towards our ideals. Right. And that's why we feel patriotism, not because we're perfect, but because right. we're more Nobody perfect. Ever Does that make any sense? No, absolutely. Yeah, so, I, t- I totally buy into that. But that's why you have this patriotism gap. I mean, talk about, in Hollowed Out, I talk a lot about this patriotism gap. Sometimes young people drive me crazy because they think that we're not aware of you yeah. know, a lot of it. Now, to a certain degree, yeah, I mean, if you want to keep digging, there's, you're going to find more. You're going to learn more Tulsa things. Mm-hmm. I guarantee they're there. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee we should know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 sometimes I want to say, are you? do you think we're not aware of the terrible, evil things that have happened in this country? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very clear that young people do not know as much history as elderly people. And yet elderly people are infinitely more patriotic mm-hmm. because their view is we overcame that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, 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 like right, right. we were born in original sin. But we're redeeming ourselves. And it's not a coincidence, by the way, that our greatest president, Abraham, renewing the covenant of America, right? right? As an Abraham would, right? right. And, and so there is this magical melody of America that you and I, we, 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 we sing to it, don't we? Mm-hmm. But a lot of young people say that that's the real America. Tell me how critical race theory has gained such traction uh, since... I- in the last, you know, since George Floyd or whenever this this examination we're going through about ourselves. Yeah. But tell me how it's gotten the point where battles are being fought in certain states and Virginia and others about whether this is going to be the the theory that that our children learn in classrooms. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I would say it's because we're offended when we look at things like what happened in Minneapolis last last May. We're offended by that. We're offended when we see that there continue to be these persistent racial gaps in educational outcomes. When you look at how much savings the average white family has versus the average black family, it is upsetting. I mean, it makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it makes, and I think young people are like, okay, if we need to tear down some some statues Mm -hmm. and we need to rename some schools uh, to to really make a statement as a a generation, we don't want anything to do with what happened back then, Mm -hmm. right? And all you guys who, who, you you, you, you have schools named after Robert E. Lee, I'm making fun of myself here, Washington and Lee mm-hmm. University. You know, we don't want anything, like we want to be crystal clear. We want nothing to do with anything that ever promoted white supremacy or racial oppression. Mm-hmm. And changing school names and taking down is a small price to pay for starting over. And I think I think young, this is what I love about young people. They want a just society now and they're tired of waiting yeah, for it. Right. And this is a powerful, powerful tool to really evoke change because it makes people look in the mirror. It, and it is good in that way. Um, and, and I think that if you don't think that there's a connection between these persistent gaps and historic trends of oppression, I think you're just fooling yourself. I, think, I ha- think it's there. How would it be taught? Can you give me an example of what it might look like in your class? You know? Well, I, I don't, th- you wouldn't, you wouldn't actually go back and, you know, read the original paper from, you know, Derek Bell, who was a, a Harvard law professor in the mm-hmm. 1970s. You wouldn't go back and read Hegel and Marx uh, and, and all of these, you know, kind of continental European philosophers who talked about how society is, a, you know, our reality is a construct of all this. Um, I, I think what you would do is you would, you, you, you would essentially say, look, look at these events from the past. Look at what happens today. There is a connection, right? There's a connection. And, and, and we are the stewards of America today, aren't we? 
right? We, we're responsible for this country today. And I think what people on the right are worried about is that you're teaching a hatred of the country. Right. I think people on the left would say, no, we're trying to get you to be aware that these things didn't happen on accident, right? And that these biases still exist. And that, and this is, you know, my daughter made a great point. She's like, I said, Lauren, what do you think critical race theory is? She's like, you've got to work really hard to get rid of these biases, mm-hmm. right? And, and sometimes they're in the shadows and we've got to get rid of them. And sometimes it's going to be, I mean, there's good news here, right? I mean, racial progress in this com- country does not happen during times of kind of peace and prosperity. It happens during the 1960s. You know, we had all this racial progress. We're not a calm time. This is not a calm time. I'm actually a believer that 10 years from now, things are going to be better. And I think it's, it, and, I, and I think that at the end of the day, being a classical liberal country, that is our ideology. There's going to be a challenge to it. And I think this is a real challenge to it. Um, in, in many instances, but I think it will absorb it. I mean, I think what kind of bothers me is classical liberalism allows critical race theory to exist. Critical race theory would not allow classical liberalism to exist, mm-hmm. right? And that's what kind of bothers me a little bit is, right. is, is what we're doing right now to me is the secret of America, right? How we, everybody's able to have a voice and, and communicate things. And that, that's kind of the thing that bothers me about it. But I mean, I think that's how you would, that, that's kind of the theme. I think that's the good news about critical race theory is to really look even deeper, to really double down on our efforts to, to, to you know, get rid of uh, any kind of racial or gender or, or uh, you know, discrimination of any form. And, I, and I, I do admire that, but I do think the process is going to be profoundly divisive. Right. Uh, you know, especially when you start pointing fingers. And, and this is, by the way, I mean, let me, probably going to piss off a lot of people now. I think it's how you get Donald Trump a little bit. Where Donald Trump would say, don't you be embarrassed about being American. Don't you be embarrassed about your faith. Don't you, apo- stop apologizing. Mm-hmm. Don't feel bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stick up for you. Right. And, and, and but, but at the end of the day, though, you know, what, what I think is interesting is when you look at what happened last summer with George Floyd and you look at five years ago uh, with, with Ferguson and you look, you know, four years ago at, at Charlottesville, isn't it interesting? Like the reaction to that was there was only one reaction, right? The re- reaction was we're not for this. Right. Right. There, right. there was no other side. Like, right. and I'm like, guys, this is good news. Right. Right. And, and what's yeah. what's interesting, and this is what just drives me loony is all you guys are marching for ideals from the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. These are American constitutional ideals enshrined in a document that you say you don't believe in. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the irony kills me. It's like, you know, some, you know, some of my students are the least patriotic, but most American people I've ever known. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that duality. Right. Um, because, because they have, the, I think, this idea that real America is, are all these awful things that we've done. And that, right. that is part of our story. Right. And I think we all need to accept that and, and right. understand it. But redemption, improvement, progress, right. Right. right, fueled by individual freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Abraham Lincoln talked about appealing to the better angels of our nature, that's what he was talking about. Right. Is that we do have these better angels. You know, when, when you read, you know, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, and he talks about the law of man squaring with the laws of God and, and that real justice. Justice is not a construct. It's not subjective. Justice exists objectively, and societies become better when they inch closer to that. That's inspiring stuff. Right, it is. I mean, you go listen to Obama. There's no red America, no blue America, just United mm-hmm. States of America. That's 2000, 2004 when he gave that speech. That mm-hmm. looks outdated to a lot of people today. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm and sorry, I, I get a little excited. No, no, I, no. I thought that was a terrific speech, too. Uh, Jeremy Adams, thank you for coming on, man. We've gone, we've gone like an hour here. This is good. This is good. Very sorry, close to it. Yeah, I, I, I get a little worked up. No, thank no. you so much. I hope to be back. I want in a, you to in a come back. You're, the book has hollowed out, it's being published in August. And being in August, uh, I'll be doing a lot of, uh, hopefully, national publicity in, in late July. Uh, it is um, it is my magnum opus. It is uh, everything. Well, you're going to come back here and talk. I will it. come back and talk a whole Thank you, buddy. Hour I appreciate thank you so much, Richard. Great uh, topic. Uh, thank you guys for listening. This will be available on Spotify, Kern Radio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Centric Health of Bakersfield.